Hey, I'm Ed Ronco. This is the Up North Lowdown, a weekly collection of stories from the IPR newsroom. But before we get to those, we need to tell you about one story that overshadowed most others in Michigan this week, the verdict that came out of a courtroom downstate in Oakland County. On count one of involuntary manslaughter as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. A jury there found Jennifer Crumbly guilty on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one for each of the four students her son murdered at Oxford High School in November 2021. Prosecutors said Jennifer Crumbly ignored her son Ethan's repeated requests for mental health counseling and instead bought him a handgun and even took him to a shooting range. Authorities said she also ignored explicit warnings from school officials two hours before the attack regarding drawings her son made that showed the gun he would use and phrases like blood everywhere and help me. School officials asked the parents to take their son home. Instead, the Crumblies decided to leave Ethan in school and did not mention that he had access to a firearm, which prosecutors say was not stored properly. Jennifer Crumbly said it was her husband's responsibility to store the gun. The defense also argued that Jennifer Crumbly was a hypervigilant mother who could not have foreseen what would happen. The jury disagreed. She faces up to 15 years in prison at her sentencing on April 9th. Her son, Ethan, is serving life in prison without the possibility of parole after pleading guilty to 24 charges. And there's been a lot of reaction to the verdict against Jennifer Crumbly, including from Michigan's Attorney General, Dana Nessel. She told WGVU that extreme cases like this might actually not be an issue in the future. On February 13th, the safe and secure storage laws go into effect, and it will sort of make it irrelevant to have these types of cases anymore exactly like this, because it won't be a matter of having to show gross negligence that a parent didn't properly secure a weapon. It's strict liability, meaning you have to secure that weapon when there are minors that reside in the household or that you know frequently visit the household. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. This is believed to be the first time a parent has been tried for manslaughter in connection with a mass shooting conducted by their child. And some legal experts say the verdict could set a national precedent for holding parents responsible. Others say the verdict is not likely to open the floodgates for parental culpability because this case is unique and had notably compelling evidence. Jennifer Crumbly's husband, James, is facing identical charges with a trial set to begin in early March. All right, let's change gears and jump into the rest of the show. Theme song, please. This week, we're going to hear a little more about child care here in northern Michigan and visit the studio of a sculpture artist named Julie Cradle. But we are starting by talking about food waste, more specifically, how we deal with it. Digesters take organic material like food waste or even manure and burn the gases they emit to generate electricity. This is a growing industry in Michigan. And supporters say it's a great way to both deal with organic waste and meet clean energy goals. But after an argument with state regulators, an operation in Fremont has decided to close. The ultimate outcome of that disagreement could have implications for clean water and clean energy here in Michigan. And so for this story, we hear from IPR's Ellie Katz and Izzy Ross, starting with Ellie at This Digester in Nuego County. A semi-truck pulls up outside the Fremont Regional Digester. It'll be one of their last deliveries. Leon Scott, the facility manager, opens up the back. 
They're pallets of energy drinks. Semi-loads of energy drinks. <laughs> and it would all be just stuck a landfill and not used. These drinks will join several loads that have already been delivered. Stacks and stacks of them line the delivery bay and twist around the corner of the facility. Slowly but surely, the drinks head to a depackaging room. They go up a giant conveyor belt and straight into a shredder at the top. Which shreds the packaging. The organics are put into the feedstock tank and uh, anything that could be recycled is recycled. Plastic bottles and packaging are ripped apart and thrown away or recycled. Fremont receives mostly manufacturing food waste, a lot of milk, energy drinks, baby food, jellies, and juices that are too close to expiration date to sell. After that stuff is shredded out of its containers, it's fed into a waiting tank. And then from there, it gets distributed hourly to the digesters that eat the food waste. The digesters are three giant tanks full of specialized bacteria. That bacteria eats the food, then excretes biogas, a combination of methane, carbon dioxide, and a few other gases. In Fremont, that gas is burned on site to generate electricity, then sold to the grid. And the concrete room where that electricity is created is a big point of pride for Scott. That engine, you hear that? That's the generator running, making that's putting power on the, into the grid right now. So that's a good sound. That's a green sound. The Fremont Regional Digester says it processes over 100,000 tons of manufacturing food waste per year, diverting it from landfills and powering about 3,500 local homes. But now it's closing its doors. The issue isn't with the food waste or the energy. It's with digestate, the liquidy, nutrient-rich stuff left over from converting food into biogas. The company can't agree with the State Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy on a permit, specifically from the state's Water Resources Division. Kind of fundamentally, our material, our process, our product is not something that the Water Resources Group has permitted before. That's Dan Macariello. He's the VP of Operations at Generate Upcycle, the San Francisco-based company that owns the Fremont Digester. We are very much a, a a square peg in a sea of round holes. Since it opened, the Fremont Digester has been regulated under the state's solid waste policy, and they've spread digestate on hundreds of nearby farm fields. Digestate is full of nutrients, minerals, and metals that can be good for the land and for crop growth. But apply it wrong or apply too much of it, and it can be bad for water quality, causing many of the same problems as fertilizer runoff. Now, Eagle is saying the consistency of Fremont's digestate is so liquidy that it's actually liquid waste, and spreading it needs to be more carefully regulated. But Dan Macariello says they already take spreading precautions, and he argues digestate isn't wastewater, it's fertilizer, and he wants Michigan to recognize it as such. In Ontario, which is a neighboring location that's on the Great Lakes, in Wisconsin, in Indiana, those states recognize this product as a registered fertilizer. We produce a fertilizer product and are able to sell an actual fertilizer. And, and Michigan has decided to take a very different approach that is, you know, uh, a different direction than all of the other states, provinces, countries that we operate in and categorize this as a industrial waste product. But the state says digestate doesn't meet the proper requirements for fertilizer. And it wants to better mitigate the risks that spreading liquid digestate poses to surface water and groundwater. So, potential water pollution is what has Eagle worried. 
and Generate Upcycle is closing down the facility because they say they're already following all the right rules, and these new permit requirements prevent them from being financially viable. But as IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross tells us, others think the issue goes beyond just water quality concerns. Yeah, this Fremont case is a big deal because it could set the stage for how Michigan regulates other digesters, including the ones that burn manure. That matters because when it's been done one way the first time, it it very easily becomes the way it's done every time after that. So we need to look carefully. Carrie Lasser is the legal director of the nonprofit For Love of Water in Traverse City. There are now 10 active digesters in Michigan. And in the past two years, the state has seen some of the most robust digester development in the country, according to the news outlet Bridge Michigan. The energy digesters produce is clean, according to federal law. That's because they use methane that would otherwise be released into the atmosphere. Michigan's new clean energy legislation also says methane digesters produce a renewable energy resource. That all means these operations are eligible for large clean energy incentives, and that's helped the industry expand. Flow and other environmental groups say that amounts to greenwashing, that is, misleading the public about environmental benefits. While digesters do capture methane, critics say designating them as sources of clean energy encourages more livestock production. That industry is the country's biggest methane emitter and can harm water quality. Huge amount of taxpayer money and support going into this large build-out and I don't think regulators are prepared to really wrap their arms around this new industry in a way that takes into account all the potential environmental and public health and quality of life impacts. This debate heated up at the end of December when a bipartisan group of lawmakers sent a letter to Eagle expressing concern about the Fremont digester permitting. The legislators said digesters are clean energy and thus important to Michigan's energy transition. But while digester development is growing, Lasser says regulations haven't caught up. There are major energy companies that are trying to expand a clean energy portfolio to counterbalance their traditional oil and gas operations because they're feeling a lot of pressure from climate regulations. So we're becoming part of a really massive industrial build-out without treating it that way. Back in Fremont, Ellie Katz tells us that whether or not digesters are the best source of clean energy isn't the main question. The question here is whether the facility needs to change how it spreads digestate on fields in order to protect water quality. And Leon Scott, the facility manager in Fremont, says his company is committed to doing that by the book, or else they wouldn't be in this fight. For now, though, they're at a standstill with Eagle, and they're in the process of letting staff go and powering down the facility. How are you feeling? Heartbroken. Um, yeah, I can. It's green energy. It meets uh, Michigan's climate agenda 100%, but they don't, we can't come to an agreement on how to manage the byproduct, and that's what's heartbreaking. IPR environment reporter Ellie Katz and climate reporter Izzy Ross, whose reporting comes to us in part through a partnership with Grist. When we come back, we are going to meet Julie Cradle. She was taking an art class in sculpture when her teacher recommended she bring in some friends to model. They all knew that I had chickens, 
and horses. And Sharon goes, well, why don't you bring some of those in? Contributor Max Howard takes us to her studio in Leelanau County for our ongoing series, Fresh Coast Creatives. That's when the Up North Lowdown returns. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health is on our mind. We are a group of high school students in Northern Michigan, and we're part of the Youth Wellness Initiative a project that aims to better understand the mental health needs of teens in our region. We surveyed over 500 of our fellow high school students to ask them about their mental health. Now we are taking our key findings and talking to our teachers, our school counselors, our principals, and professionals in the community about some of the big questions that came up in the process. Find our new podcast, Reframe of Mind. Reframe of Mind. Reframe of Mind. At interlockandpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. Back in December, we brought you a series about childcare. It's a huge problem in northern Michigan, mostly because it's expensive and very hard to find. So, what does an equitable childcare system look like? IPR's Tyler Thompson took a closer look at that, starting with one of the biggest issues childcare workers face. It's pay. Dismally low pay. The average childcare worker in Michigan makes about $13 an hour in line with the country, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Mary Manor is senior director of United Way of Northwest Michigan. She says there's been a serious lack of investment in the industry. Economically, she calls childcare a failed sector. It doesn't fit with supply and demand. And the reality is, is that to provide care is it's costly. Manor says there is some investment from the state, like funding to increase the supply of high-quality infant toddler child care. But she says it's not perfect and doesn't address more money for better pay for the caregivers themselves. Are we really investing in what we need, which is our workforce? And, and that's... That's a tough one. And the low pay disproportionately affects women. The National Women's Law Center, a nonprofit advocacy group, finds that 95% of the child care workforce is majority women and that they're egregiously underpaid. They are the ones who generally bear children, although we know that can be in different gender groupings as well. But um, And because of that, they tend to just kind of get associated with all these particular duties. Rachel Wolcheski is a sociology professor at Northwestern Michigan College. She has a Ph.D. in sociology with a specialization in gender, justice, and environmental change. We are functioning on our implicit biases and what we think and what we've learned about the world. And we associate women with caregiving. That's not to say men don't want to care for children. Wolcheski says a lot of progress has been made on that assumption, but social institutions haven't caught up to that cultural desire. And so there's a lack of flexibility within schools and workplaces and different corporations, companies, etc., where they're not really building in that sort of expectation for men to be able to take on the caregiving role. Wolcheski would like to see a solid parental leave policy for both parents, like in many Scandinavian countries. And Wolcheski says there needs to be a shift in understanding in what caregivers do. It's not just watching kids when their parents are at work. The job involves teaching them 
in helping them grow and develop new social skills and giving them a good foundation to function as they move toward adulthood. Their wage should reflect the prestige that we need to give to that occupation. In a capitalist society, we value a lot of things with the money we put behind them. We see that with the with the income that people are making. It's hard to change that system. There are some programs trying to deal with affordability, like TriShare, where employers, parents, and the government split the cost of childcare. People like Mary Manor at the United Way say the programs and funding is one thing, but we need to fundamentally change the way it thinks about childcare as crucial to the way kids develop and the way society functions. Childcare is no different than other infrastructure. In my opinion, it's no different than other infrastructure in our community. So we need roads, you know, we need electricity, we need water, we need all those things in order to be able to get to work. We need childcare. To see more of our reporting on childcare, go to iprnews.org and check out our series, A Crisis of Care. You'll find it in the IPR News drop-down menu. Now it's time to listen to another installment of our series, Fresh Coast Creatives. This is Fresh Coast Creatives from IPR, a series about artists and inspiration in Northern Michigan. Each week, we'll go into the studio or creative space of a local artist and talk with them about what makes them tick. I'm Max Howard. I'm going to interrupt. So if look at your window out on your car. This little cardinal, for weeks, has been attacking our windows here. This week, I met with the sculpture artist Julie Cradle back at her studio in Cedar. She's always noticing the animals on her property which makes sense considering the kinds of sculptures she makes. And he has just been, like, relentless. <laughs> but anyway, He's probably not one you're going to make a, a sculpture out of. But, well, I actually raised three cardinals one year. Julie's studio has most of the things you'd expect. A few work tables, two kilns. But how you can tell this is Julie's studio is by the number of animal sculptures strewn throughout. Not all the animals are Julie's. Some are for anatomical reference, some are from fellow artists she enjoys, but when you see Julie's work, it's unmistakably hers. In one corner, a rabbit playfully lays on its back with its feet kicked up in the air. On another table, a long-eared dog sleeps in the back of a lazy horse. None of them are larger than a kid's stuffed animal doll, and all of them have this subtle fairy tale quality to them. That really reminds me of like a children's storybook. You know, mm -hmm. that's something you see is jumping to the moon or something. Right, you know? exactly. I think it's because when I was growing up, we moved a lot and books were my friends. And I loved animal stories like Aesop's fables. Julie made art long before she did it for a living. She tinkered with tile and fabric and toll painting, but she had responsibilities at home. I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom basically for 30 years. But then one opportunity set the tone for her artistic career. When Julie lived downstate in the outer reaches of Metro Detroit, she took a ceramics class where her instructor, Sharon Summers, said she could bring a model of her choosing. They all knew that I had chickens and horses, and Sharon goes, well, why don't you bring some of those in? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and that's all still, size. I just love that, that you know, image of like, oh, you know, and then they said I could bring anyone, so I brought a horse. Yeah, I brought, a, I brought sheep. Like, <laughs> I took <laughs> lambs in. And then, when her children were grown and out of the house, Julie ended up getting divorced. What to do next wasn't immediately obvious. She didn't have a lot of work experience and needed some kind of income. You know, I did little things that some, you know, I would work outside the home, little, but nothing major. So she moved around for a bit, staying with her family when she could. I ended up living in 
Tennessee for a while, living in Georgia for a while, living in Florida for a while. Mm -hmm. Eventually, her daughter, who lived here in Kingsley, told Julie to come live with her. She could help her get settled and figure out how to start a new life. And when I moved up here is, well, I'm like, what am I going to do? So then my daughter said, well, why don't you become a nurse? I'm like, hmm. And so I signed up at NMC, all set to go in the fall. Later that summer, a friend invited her to a dinner party. So then a friend of mine said, I have someone I think you would like to meet. I'm having a dinner party. And I was like, I don't want to meet anybody. My life is set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? like, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. <laughs> I want to stick to my plan. At the party, she met her future partner. Steve Kostashin. So I'm standing there making my awful guacamole because the avocados were too hard. And Steve comes in the door and it was like the sunshine walked through the door. It's a long story short. I ended up staying the rest of the evening and I called him later and asked him out for a date. And we've been together ever since. Steve, it turned out, was an artist too. At the time, he was working in porcelain and stoneware and exhibiting regularly. So naturally, Julie started attending his shows. And then she had an idea. And then when I met Steve, I was still planning on being a nurse. But yet when I went with him to shows, I thought, well, I can do this. Julie started working out of Steve's studio, which is now also her studio, where we met for this interview. She already had an edge when it came to trying to make it as an artist. She'd been practicing for the last 30 years. But on top of that, she now also joined a community of artists through Steve. I didn't have to have that learning curve of like, what kind of images do I need to submit? What kind of booth slide do I need to submit? What shows are the best to apply mm-hmm. to? Now things were falling into place. Julie had these decades of experience and this new community to help her start her career. But the decision to become an artist was just that, a decision she made at a crossroads in her life. Well, I love, and I love that angle of the story too, is you know, coming in, it's like a strange new world mm-hmm. and you, just land in this perfect spot you know right. and like through romance which is <laughs> right like which fun. is so cliche <laughs> but, it's, but you don't <laughs> so, hear it though it's right it's, a, it's from a movie and maybe that's a part of what makes an artist not just the talent or having the inspiration but the ability to change up and set a new course for your life one of your own making for interlock and public radio i'm max howard Support for Fresh Coast Creatives comes from the Northwest Michigan Arts and Culture Network through an award from the Michigan Arts and Culture Council, connecting arts, culture, and our creative communities. Okay, let's find out what else happened this week. With just one more permit remaining, the Line 5 Tunnel Project is slowly moving out of the planning stages. At the latest Mackinac Straits Corridor Authority meeting, the state said it's chosen a firm to review the controversial project's engineering and construction plans. Enbridge says the company has already chosen a contractor to lead the actual construction of the tunnel and help complete the remaining federal permit. The tunnel beneath the Straits of Mackinac would house sections of the aging Line 5 pipelines, which right now carry crude oil and natural gas liquids across the bottom of the Straits of Mackinac. Environmental groups and Michigan's 12 native sovereign nations all oppose the pipeline itself and the tunnel project. 
A new segment of trail planned for Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore would remove more than 7,000 young trees and saplings. That's according to an independent analysis by a Traverse City-based consulting firm. Segment 9, it's called, would cross critical dune habitat that's protected at the state level. Now, supporters of the trail segment say the construction complies with state and federal laws around species removal. Opponents say the construction could harm the sensitive dune habitat. The National Park Service still needs to receive permits in order to build the trail. Affordable housing and more spending on public safety are among the priorities Governor Gretchen Whitmer highlighted in her budget proposal for the upcoming fiscal year. The $33.3 billion spending plan would also guarantee free education from preschool through two years of community college. The proposal received a chilly reception from some Republicans, but not all. State Senator John DeMoose of Harbor Springs urged caution on spending, but said the proposal's not all bad and addresses a lot of needs important to people in his up-north district, including childcare and housing. Lawmakers have until October 1st to pass the budget. Education items could move faster, though. That's so schools know what they're working with before the school year begins. Warm weather continues to cause problems for winter sports in northern Michigan. Three Upper Peninsula dog sled races were canceled for the second year in a row because of a lack of snow. And the notoriously short sturgeon fishing season was canceled this year for the first time ever because of low ice cover on Black Lake. That's it for the lowdown this week. We had contributions from Ellie Katz, Izzy Ross, Tyler Thompson, Max Howard, and public radio stations WGVU, WCMU, and WDET. We make this podcast at Interlochen Public Radio. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland, and I'm Ed Ronco. Hey, thanks for listening. Have a great week. We leave you now with the sound of that digester in Nuego County, just going about its work. Watch your step. You good? Yep, thank you. It's not as sticky as I thought it was going to be. So we have homes right there. We can't be stinky. There's people living right there. So what is this we're walking into? This is the pump room between all the digesters. So this is a stinky room, but it should probably stink. It really doesn't smell that bad. It smells like cows, kind of. Smells like a farm. Why is that? It's the same bacteria that we cultivate is the same bacteria in cow manure. Interesting. <laughs> the recent Tokyo Summer Olympics saluted the music of video games in a big way. The Parade of Nations saw athletes enter the stadium to a huge orchestral medley of game tunes, including themes from Kingdom Hearts, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy, and lots more. I'm Keith Brown. Join me for game music played at the Olympic Games, this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.